You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. All right, uh, so welcome back to Simulcast. I'm Ben Simon, and I'm very excited to be here today recording a special crossover episode of Simulcast with a team behind the Alien Medic series. And I've got the immense privilege to have uh, Brent Tomer, who's the Emergency Medicine Research Director at the University of Saskatchewan and an Associate Editor of Alien. Thanks for having me. Here with us tonight, and also one of the experts of the month, who's Dr. Andrew Hall. And you're an Assistant Professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at Queen's University, is that right? That's right. Yeah, thanks. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. And I understand it's uh, coming at a particularly challenging time for you at the moment when you're currently being stalked by some kind of unknown creature in the air vents above you. Yeah, about 10 minutes before starting, I think there might be a mouse or a rat or something even bigger uh, in the uh, vents in my house that uh, we're just everyone has to keep an ear out for any screams coming from my wife or children uh, if something falls out of the vents. So we'll keep that in mind. (laughs) All right. So look, over the course of this month, we've had the pleasure to share this debriefing case on the Alien website regarding a young sim educator called Eliza who's trying to problem solve some issues she's having with her debriefs with the help of her director, Susan. Um, And on the Alien Medic site, there's been this blog post and then some educators and clinicians from around the globe have commented on that case. And then there's a fantastic summary that's just been uploaded involving a summary of the discussions and also involving a number of expert opinions and that's been published on the alien website if that format sounds uh, familiar and similar to our journal club that's because that's where i stole the idea from so now that it's all wrapped up um, i was wondering brent if you could get us started if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and also a bit of an intro into the alien medic series for those of our listeners who haven't engaged with it before Yeah, absolutely. So uh, thanks for that introduction. Uh, My current roles with uh, Allium have changed over the years, but uh, predominantly now I spend some time with academic life and emergency medicine on the team that produces these medical education and cases series. So as some background, uh, Dr. Teresa Chan, who hails from McMaster University in Ontario, she got this idea in around 2013 to create sort of a Harvard Business Review style case, but for medical educators. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Harvard Business Review, these are cases uh, from the business world that are really presented as being quite messy. They're messy scenarios, scenarios that don't just have an obvious clean cut answer, and they have experts come and then try to answer them. So we took a relatively similar format with the medical education and cases series. We try to answer the questions that we pose via these cases that we write in a couple of ways. First, we recruit a couple extra experts like uh, Andrew, who's who's on our call with us today, and we have their response. Then the other thing we do, which is maybe a little bit more fun, is as you do with the uh, journal club, we host an online discussion of these experts, and we then curate that conversation to try and draw out the most important pearls from that discussion. And put that all together in a case summary, which we ultimately turn into books. We're on our fifth season right now. We've got three uh, freely available online textbooks that have come out of this. And we'd love for you to check it out. We're hugely flattered that you guys have decided to use this model uh, for your journal club. And I love listening in. Yeah, cheers. Well, I'm, I'm geeking out having you here because um, if... Uh... 
if our listeners haven't been to the website, it's pretty incredible. And you guys are pretty huge over there in the US. Yeah, well, I, so, you know, it's not even just in the US. I mean, I'm in Canada, so is Andrew, but we, we've we helped out Dr. Teresa Chan has, I think we, Academic Life and Emergency Medicine has over 100 volunteers working regularly with them. They're really not so much a blog anymore, but a medical education organization. And you know, everyone's volunteers. They're just donating their time to work with a really innovative, fun group of people in this online virtual community of practice that they've created. Yeah, it's a phenomenal thing to check out. So I do recommend it for our leaders to log on and we'll uh, include that link in the summary when we post this podcast. But uh, moving on to the case now. So the case this month was about Eliza, who's this medical educator, and she's feeling frustrated. Her master's in education doesn't seem to have prepared her for debriefing as much as she'd hoped, and she can't seem to get her learners to talk about the things she wants to talk about, they don't seem to buy into her scenarios, and they don't seem to be getting her hints about the learning objectives. And Brent, I was wondering, when you sat down and started writing this case, what were the big issues that you hoped would come up? I'm in a place right now as a simulation educator where I'm doing probably as much faculty development with simulation as I am actually teaching with simulation. So we've got a huge cohort of faculty who are struggling occasionally. Once they realize how different simulation education can be, they are often struggling with how to go through a debrief and have them seem as slick and educational as the more experienced debriefers in the group. So this is not an uncommon circumstance, I think, that we put Eliza in. And uh, it really resonated with me. What I was hoping to get out of it was sort of a guide that I could give my junior educators when they're struggling with their debrief to see perhaps where they're going wrong and what they might be able to do to improve their debriefs, whether they're actually struggling or just think they are. So, yeah, there were a lot of responses to the case from a very wide variety of experts, such as Adam Ching, as well as a very multinational response with educators from South Africa, Australia, and North America this month. Eve's done such a lovely job with the summary PDF that's available online, and she highlighted four main themes. One was the importance of the pre-brief and teaching learners how to sim. Two was the need to embrace debriefing as being a learning facilitator as opposed to a teacher specifically. Three was kind of this theme that there's a really mercurial definition of what makes a good debrief, and there was a fair amount of diversity of opinion on that. And then fourthly, she talked about how to approach debriefing the debrief. And I'm wondering if I can ask ask you, Andrew, what were some of the points that came up for you in the online discussion? Oh, thanks. Um, You know, it's uh, it's interesting. I think I'm a lot like um, Brent in that... um, uh, spending a lot of time thinking about how faculty around me are approaching debriefing as well as myself. Um, and having not actually kind of had a lot of formal training, despite interestingly as this, you know, postgraduate studies in medical education and things like that have not really done formal debriefing training because I've been kind of brought up with mentors in my own training program. Um, and one of the things that I think really struck out uh, or stood out uh, to me um, was this idea of facilitation uh, and, you know, facilitate learning. And Adam Cheng really uh, talked about that when it says debriefing to facilitate learning. And um, uh, this concept that um, the debrief in SIM is, is, is different from teaching. I don't know that it's that different from other debriefing, but um, that you're really trying to 
um, bring out the process of learning in the trainee. Um, and there was a bunch of other great, like great comments in there from experts in the field, certainly. Um, I really appreciated George Masteris's comments about, uh, and, and others about the idea of maintaining the basic assumption that all learners are skilled and caring and trying to do their best. And then the other thing that really stuck out was this idea of focusing on um, and always going back to a genuine curiosity uh, and that that, um, that will allow you to succeed no matter what structure you're using if you're genuinely curious. And I think Adam mentioned that too and maybe some others. Yeah, I really love that point. Um, and I know in um, your co-expert for the month, Glenn's response, he kind of phrases that in this really beautiful way where he says, the key to success is to stay curious and tenaciously hold on to the basic assumption, um, which is quite a visual kind of image. And I think it's very much a fundamental truth. That's right. Glenn really did a great job highlighting that. Yeah, Brent, how about yourself? What were some interesting points that came up for you? Yeah, you know I, it's funny. I think Andrew, we picked up on a similar thread as as the thing that uh, really really resonated with us. I really enjoyed that discussion of the question that was uh, posed about whether the skills of an educator overlap with those of a simulation facilitator. Because my intrinsic reaction to to hearing that question was, well, no. I mean, I know lots of great educators and if I put them in a facilitating or debriefing situation, often they'll try to teach rather than facilitate. Often they'll try to uh, really sort of do the Socratic thing and, you know, ask questions and guess what I'm thinking questions and that sort of stuff. And they're great teachers, but the facilitating and the goals of simulation seem to me to be, to be somewhat different. But I thought uh, Shannon McNamara, who uh, if I'm not mistaken, is still out of New York city. She had just a great point. She admitted that, what makes a good simulation debrief also makes great bedside teaching, just being uh, respectful, having a constructive, reflective, productive conversation on the performance that occurred is really what we want to be doing in education, which actually got me thinking about the other way. Maybe we should be teaching more of these simulation facilitation teaching skills to our general educators and not sort of siphoning them off into this uh, almost subfield of education that seems to have developed. And, and I just, that, that's what that got me thinking about. And I really appreciate the conversation that, that brought that up because, uh, it really made me think, you know, Brent, I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, um, this idea that, that, uh, and I think also, you know, you're in emergency medicine, I'm in emergency medicine. Um, we have less on the job opportunity to teach and far more on the job opportunity to use debriefing as an education process, as a teaching process. And, and, I, and I, I'm trying to kind of follow along with your theme there that um, debriefing what happened in the sim lab, the only difference in the sim lab is that we, we made that up, we did that. Whereas when you're debriefing critical events or debriefing what's happening in the emergency department, I, I think it's a lot of the same, the same skills. It was an interesting discussion because I think it almost feels to me like sim culture in general is starting to come not full circle, but come to a new place where we've, you know, spent a long time getting people to buy in that sim is a useful way of teaching. And then kind of we're kind of being asked now, can you, can you run it a lot more efficiently? Can you do it cheaper? But it's definitely important. And then I'm noticing that some conversations that are happening online and in a few journals now is a number of 
experts in the field are starting to take that next step and say, hmm, how much sim do we actually need to be doing? And actually, can we use the skills that we're developing here with our conversational techniques to actually move this learning conversation back from the sim lab and into real life by the patient bedside? Um, I guess just in terms of other stuff that came up, um, Vic made some interesting points about teaching the learners how to learn from sim. And I'm wondering whether you guys have any strategies about that. Yeah, you know, I, I found this concept interesting. I think it was uh, Vic Brazel who who initially brought this up in one of the first comments, noting that, you know, leaving a debrief that was difficult, it, you know, you can't completely own it as a debriefer. There might be things that you could have done better, but the whole group needs to own the debrief and how that goes. And I think if you're going to have that opinion, you really do need to prepare your learners to receive feedback, to reflect and to participate in that way in a debrief and how that actually works. Um, I, I'd be looking and interested in learning more and exploring that. Um, from my perspective, it's a lot about teaching people how to uh, take feedback and really doing a good job of pre-briefing them so that they know what they're going to expect. They're willing to buy into it and they can engage in the educational process fully but I'm confident that there's more work to be done in that area about how do you teach learners to optimize their ability to reflect and gain from their debriefing experiences, both clinical and in the simulation lab. Brent, that's, that's great. You know, in, at our, at our training program in Kingston, we've just transitioned to transition to a, a new competency-based training model. Uh, along with the rest of Canada, but we're just going a bit a bit early at Queens. And um, one of the big things that we're doing now, several months into this process, is realizing how much our learners um, need to learn how to receive more feedback. Because we're doing more direct observation, we're 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 giving more feedback, and then what's happening with that feedback, um, and how are learners learning from it? Um, so, I mean, I think it's it's very similar. Um, in the sim lab, and I think Ben, you highlighted in your comments this concept of trust and honesty. And maybe I'm, I'm moving in a different direction, but I think that if the facilitator um, is is being very um, very honest about the processes, very upfront, and that there's a trust between the learner and the and the facilitator, that that process of learning from the feedback is is usually more robust and and more easy. Um, uh, because people are, as Brent said, more able to buy in um, to the whole process uh, if everyone's attacking it together um, rather than um, the classic teacher above the learner. Um, if everyone's in it together, going through the sim together, um, whether the facilitator is in the room or not, but the concept of being together in the process, um, then learning lessons from it as a, uh, together can work. But it's so challenging. and. I guess um, you make some great points there, Andrew, and I wonder, I know certainly in my own sims, I really want to kind of even out the hierarchy and get this re trusting relationship with people and make them feel comfortable that they can ask questions and acknowledge, you know, if they not don't know something, etc. But a lot of the time, it's such a complex web of sort of internally perceived hierarchies that are, you know, very diverse depending on who's in the room and what their own perspective is and what history and background they bring to the sim room and you must have a very interesting perspective on that being someone who's heavily involved in con competency-based uh, simulation assessment 
and how do you go about building trust in that kind of environment? Well, that's great. Um, that's a really tough question. Um, you know, uh, there are certain personalities that seem to um, do that better than others, um, but I'd like to think that everybody has the capacity to do that. Um, it starts with um, being uh, honest yourself about the sim processes and everything that goes on in the sim lab and reflecting that back to your learners. Um, and then I think that I'm just going to steal from Damon Dagnoni's comment. Um, I think he commented that sometimes things take a bit of time. And um, certainly um, having multiple opportunities to go through debriefing in the real world or in the sim lab with the same people um, can foster that kind of relationship. Um, I think the process of building trust in the sim lab is really hard in a one-off opportunity where, you know, if, if, if myself and, and a trainee were to come in de novo not knowing each other, there, I think there's a limit to the amount of trust, but you can work hard at it. But after years of doing it with trainees, I think that you can really foster a strong relationship whereby that <clears throat> debriefing to facilitate learning um, really happens and happens uh, far more quickly and effectively. Yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. I also really liked Damon's comment that you're talking about. He talked about how he's got a longstanding relationship with these residents that he's built over five years. And when I think about what he's saying there, it really gets back to this whole, are you know, the whole theme we've had here. Are you a medical educator or are you a simulation educator, or simulation debriefer? Well, if we think about it from this perspective and the importance of trust, I think you really got to start thinking that, well, debriefing doesn't start or simulation education doesn't start when you walk into the sim lab. We spend a lot of time focusing on this concept of pre-briefing and how important it is for everything. But, you know, in these longer relationships, I think it goes beyond pre-briefing. No one's going to be a spectacular simulation educator if the they turn into a great facilitator just the moment they walk into that room. I think uh, there's something more intrinsic and fundamental that the best debriefers are, where what you're seeing in that debriefing room is not them doing their debriefing thing. It's them as who they are as a person all the time, which if you have that attitude, that curiosity, you're always trying to build that safe container. You're going to naturally foster that trust in your team and group of learners. And I think when you get into the sim lab or when you get into a clinical situation after it, you're still going to have an easier time to debrief because there is that trust there. Um, if I can make an analogy to <clears throat> even just relationships. So um, people form fast relationships when they, um, you know, um, um, when they expose, um, expose vulnerabilities. And my sense is that in the sim lab, you can rapidly um, establish a, a deeper relationship with somebody um, through the exposure of vulnerabilities. And that can often come through humor and humility. And so, um, you know, we run sims where I've maybe in a room with five nursing students, two medical students, and a couple of residents, and I've not met any of them. And I think that some humor and some honest humility up front sets the tone for, um, you know, we're all kind of learning together. We all have flaws, um, but we'll be, uh, we'll be going out the other side better, all of us. And I think that's a, that's a key way to approach things. So emotional honesty, humility, expose your own vulnerabilities, clearly set expectations, allow some time, and acknowledge the importance of longitudinal relationships. 
Well, there's a list right there. Uh, nice work. Love that curated commentary you just did for us there. So moving on to that, um, exposing your vulnerabilities. There was a term that came up a couple of times in the blog comments that I think I understood, but I hadn't heard before. And that was the just culture model. Um, does anyone know what that means? Simon, I hope you'll allow for that silent pause to continue in the in the in the actual podcast version. Um, I, I can't comment any any further on, on on that specific model myself. Nope, and I don't think Brent, you got. Yeah, any I mean, I, I saw Shannon's comment about that, but I, you know, it's it's a fairly new it's a new concept to me as well, and I haven't read much about it, so I wouldn't really want to do it wrong. Okay, well, I'm I'm going to Google it. So uh, <laughs> Google tells me in a <laughs> in a just culture, both the organization and its people are held accountable while focusing on risk, systems design, human behavior, and patient safety. Um, so sounds to me probably it's a little bit like that um, basic assumption that we talk about a lot, but also maybe incorporating a little bit more of the uh what do you call it the organization itself rather than just the people involved while still maintaining a focus on risk and systems yeah i think that's a that's a good summary of the point shannon was trying to get across i think you know when when she combined those two concepts it's not just believing the best in everyone or having that basic assumption but it's also going further to acknowledge the limitations of the systems that we work in and how those are going to impact even people with the best intentions so I, I like the concept. It's it's not one that I've uh, seen a whole lot uh, yet or read a whole lot about, but I, I anticipate we'll be hearing more about it. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting concept. I'm going to have to explore it a little bit more. <clears throat> um, so look, I really um, enjoyed Glenn's stance in the comments on the importance of learner-centered debriefing. Um, and he makes the statement that participants never talk about the wrong thing they talk about what they find interesting or personally challenging. And I guess Eliza in this case is having some frustration with that because she's got some very specific learning objectives that she wants to comment on and she wants to get the group engaged. And I'm just wondering, um, what strategies do you guys use to try and get better synchronicity between the learner's objectives and the educator's goals? So, um strategies that uh, it's andrew strategies that i would um employ i think revolve around ad addressing learner and um, priorities early and then there are models that highlight this um I, I don't think that a learner can um if if they have a priority if they have something that happened in that sim that's either giving them anxiety or concern they may have caused harm or they think they did great and it should be acknowledged or whatever it might be it's really hard to proceed thinking about something else if 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 their mind is occupied with that. Um, and I think that really acknowledging that early in the process is incredibly important. I think that's highlighted in most of the models that are out there. And um, that allows the learner to engage and, you know, um, activate their kind of pre-existing schema to do with that, whatever the concept is, and then really move forward on that. And um, it's getting at that going through the sim experience with them rather than kind of what you thought was going to happen. Um, but seeing what happened to them in that 
sim scenario? What did they experience? And then getting on there, getting on board with them and experiencing it with them. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I've and always that's... taken the perspective, and I think most simulation educators do, that the learner's agenda is incredibly important, both because that's what they are focused on, that's what they're potentially the most open to learn about. But also, I think if you look into theories of motivation and psychology, like self-determination theory is going to tell us that things like autonomy and relatedness are really important. And giving that learner to the, the chance to have the experience that they did, own the experience, define what that was, and then validating them by actually discussing that as something that's important, I think is one of the reasons that SIM can be such a magical educational tool. Now, that being said, of course, there are always times where there are really important issues that need to be discussed from, from the perspective of the facilitator or educator. And I think the, the Chang approach, if we're going to call it that now, that uh, was, was pulled from that discussion is a really good way to go about it. He advocated for tackling the common agenda as the first item. So things that were both on your priority list and the learner's priority list, when you hear their reactions, you can talk about those first because those are going to meet both of your needs. He then pivots to issues of critical or life-threatening patient concern, sorry, patient safety concern type areas. So if there's anything that's that important, that's another priority area. And then ultimately getting to other learning objectives and leaving the instructor agenda items for last. And that may seem uh, a bit backwards to traditional educators who set their agenda and then build their whole curriculum around that. But I think if you design a scenario, certainly it'll go, certainly it'll go off the rails occasionally, but most of the time you have some idea of what the key issues that are going to come up and they are going to align to some degree with what you wanted to talk about and what the learners wanted to talk about. I really liked Adam's response uh, on the Cheng approach, uh, and I hope we continue to refer to it as that. But um, <clears throat> I love it because it's so practical and it gives you some nice kind of little steps to actually moving towards a more learning-centered debrief. Because I think, it, as you said, Brent, it can be incredibly challenging to do that when you're moving from sort of a traditional te teaching model. Um, and I guess I talked to some of my learners about trying to learn to ride the wave and just letting the learners kind of go where they want to go while also just maybe occasionally just leaning over the edge and trying to steer the conversation in a different way. But that's a huge frame shift for a lot of people. I totally agree. I think it goes back to, again, that theme of the medical educator versus the facilitator. And I mean, I, I think, as you mentioned, we're perhaps coming around to those being a much more similar thing moving forward. I think the learner agenda, the learning the learner learning agenda is becoming much more prominent in medical education. And perhaps that is somewhat influenced by the simulation educators uh, perspective. You know, it's important to, to re relate to anyone who is, is new to this process that it doesn't mean that you're ignoring your instructor agenda items or in the, in the Chang approach, these um, issues that relate to critical life threatening errors or errors or patient safety concerns. It just means that there's a time for that. Um, and I think that allowing the learner to get to that time and then having a sense of the interpersonal dynamics at play um, allow even more effective, uh, more effective delivery of the messages related to those critical or life-threatening errors. 
Um, and it doesn't always need to be kind of inductive where the trainee realizes something immaculately. Um, but I'm just getting to a point where it's the time to, um, you know, to identify clearly potentially a critical life-threatening error, but at the time when the learner is ready to hear that. And, um, and I think that that's really, really the, the key thing there. I totally agree. I think, I mean, we talked about uh, how we can make sure the environment is uh, safe for the learner. And if you're going to be talking about potential critical things, it is nice to have potentially built some rapport, fostered the relatedness between the learner and the educator by talking about those things on the common agenda at the beginning. I, I, I totally agree that that could potentially even improve the conversation you're ultimately going to have when you are talking about those critical issues. Of course, this does presume that you're going to have time to get to all of those things. And uh, from my perspective, the debrief is where the most learning happens and is the most important. So it's not something I never try to uh, cut back on too much. Absolutely. It it can be freeing too, I think, just uh, not having to come up with all the learning objectives on your own and just saying, you know what, I'm going to trust these learners. Uh, Let's see where they want to take us and we'll go from there. So moving on from the group discussion, Andrew, I want to move the conversation a little bit onto your expert opinion. Um, And it was interesting because you seemed to go on a little bit of a journey yourself over the course of this discussion. So you quote yourself in the opening paragraph of your response as saying, if you can debrief in the clinical environment, you can debrief in the sim lab. Uh, But then you walk yourself back a little bit from that stance. And I'm wondering what changed your mind over the course of this conversation? You know, it's interesting. That is, uh, that's a. I think Brent may have been in the room as well. That's a, that's a real quote from a quote from a week and a half ago. Um, prior to sitting down to or two weeks ago, prior to sitting down to to kind of write this, um, and it actually, it, it truly, and and doing this process gave me a pause to think about what are the things that are different, and I think I often think about debriefing as similar. Um, and, and even just having conversations with colleagues, uh, and, and rather than kind of, you know, just, just reading about what are the literature based differences thinking, what, what do you think is different in the sim lab? And, um, and when you're debriefing something in the hospital, you're not in control of that really is the big, the big, uh, the big thing you're in control of the debrief, but you've experienced something together. So you have an immediate bond with, um, with the, uh, training or whoever you're debriefing. But when you're debriefing in a sim lab, you go in with a preceding um, uh, concept about what you think is about to happen. And when you have that, you actually have to be um, careful not to just maintain that and actually watch to see what actually happens. And I think that, that, that is a, that's a big difference because you're going in with a bias towards something and you, you're not paying attention, maybe even look at your phone for a second. You can miss very critical things. Um, and that wouldn't happen in the real world. Um, and then the other big difference is that in the sim lab, you can really truly directly observe without interfering in any way. And um, I mean, that's a super powerful thing about sim in general. Um, but it allows you a far deeper um, uh, view into the mindset of the learner, into the capacity and capabilities of the learner. Um, and so you're privileged to have that. And then you need to uh, pay attention to it. Um, uh, and so that those are the two big differences that, that kind of that I saw in reflecting on this. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Andrew. Uh, so look, I really appreciate both of you guys taking your time uh, calling us from overseas to have a chat with us about this and with our listeners. And I'm just wondering, just to finish the discussion, 
What are the things you hope our learners take away from the case of the difficult debrief? So from my perspective, I think the uh, thing that most resonated with me was the potential uses of all of our simulation facilitation techniques in the real world, not just in debriefing, but in our general teaching. And that, you know, it's perhaps it's not that a simulation educator can or can't use their use their skills in the opposite setting, but can everyone use the sales skills of a simulation educator to facilitate and debrief in our everyday teaching? Yeah, you know, the thing that um, the thing that I am kind of taking home from this case, or I hope people would take home from this case is, is that things go awry when um, there's not a shared understanding of the events that happen in the sim. And, uh, you know, going back to, um, if, it was, if it was Glenn Posner's comment or multiple people's comments of, you know, learner-centered debriefing and multiple terms for this, um, you can't argue about facts. You have to understand the events together. And, you know, you're, you're going through traditional experiential learning. So you want to guide them through this and facilitate that by reviewing the experience, drawing some conclusion and some conclusions, and then planning some future actions. And I think, um, you know, uh, above all things, um, I love, I love this idea of staying curious. Thank you to all the people that, that said that in the comments uh, and how key that is. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, look, uh, I agree. There are differences between debriefing and clinical teaching, but there's also a lot of symbiosis between the two skills. Um, 100% agree about the pivotal importance of genuine curiosity. And I think uh, your phrase, Andrew, that you are more important than me with regard to our learners is a really important take home as well. So closing that up now, uh, Brent, what's coming up uh next in the uh, alien medic series so we run a ship with a pretty tight schedule so i i won't be able to foreshadow the next case but i can tell you that we run one of these each month during the academic year and that we will be back hosting another stimulating discussion on an educational conundrum based on a case that may or may not have been inspired by real world events. So we definitely encourage you to check out Allium uh, next month and see if you can't get engaged and contribute to that uh, wonderful community of educators by responding to our case. Fantastic. Cases ripped from the headlines. And uh, if uh, you have some downtime between uh, the next Aliomedic series, please um, come and join us on the Simulcast Journal Club. We've got a fantastic discussion currently going on about Rudolf et al.'s pivotal paper, Establishing a Safe Container for Learning and Simulation. And there's a little bit of a controversy. Uh, psych safety is taking a tiny bit of a beating. So uh, if you feel like standing up for it, uh, come along and join us in the chat. Uh, thank you once again to Andrew and uh, Brent for coming along. I really appreciate your time. I've had a fascinating discussion uh, and I look forward to working with you guys again in the future. Yourself as well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It's a real treat. Simulcast. <laughs>